Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, we are in our series, The Story of Jesus, and this is part 30 uh, of the story of Jesus. Don't worry, we only have another 60 or 70 parts to go and we'll be done. Just kidding. It's not going to last that long, but it probably will last another 30 maybe, a little less than that. And we are going through the book of Mark, chapter by chapter, actually passage by passage, and diving in on who Jesus really was, stripping away 2,000 years of kind of historical baggage and religious baggage and just looking at who he was, what he said, and what it meant in the context of the culture that he lived in. And so if you've been along with us for the ride, uh, hopefully you have a Bible. I want to encourage you to open that up to Mark chapter 9. We're going through the book of Mark, and uh, we're going to start in verse 30 today. So I'll give you a few minutes to get there. It has been quite a ride to this point. Jesus comes on the scene. He is uh, calling his disciples. He is healing people. He makes food for, for thousands of people from one lunch twice. He walks on water. He uh, heals countless people. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak. People with demons are set free. Uh, he Last week, if you were with us last week, he kind of does this transfiguration thing on the mountain, and a few of his disciples see him kind of light up like lightning or like the sun and realize that uh, well, I think they had realized that he was something special before that, but at this point, there is no question who they believe Jesus is and really who Jesus is, that he was the one that was going to come from God. He was the Messiah, the rescuer, the Christ, and people, uh, people wanted to make him king at this point. His ministry has gathered momentum. There have been several situations where they wanted to, to grab him and make him king by force, and he's kind of slipped away and has avoided that because that was wasn't the plan. Um, and uh, the people of Israel kind of have this preconceived notion, this expectation of who Jesus was supposed to be, of who the Messiah was supposed to be anyway. And they've been, we've spent the first nine chapters of Mark with them trying to figure out whether he was or not. And now they're pretty much convinced, at least a lot of them are, that he was the Messiah that was supposed to come, that he was the rescuer. Their prophets had written about him, right? And they had a very clear picture of what he was supposed to do when he showed up. And so he was supposed to be a king, the king. He was supposed to restore Israel to its glory days when King David was the king. He was supposed to be powerful and a military hero and defeat the enemies of Israel, right? They had this, what I would call a paradigm in their mind of, of this is the picture of who the Messiah is and what he's supposed to do. And Jesus blows up their paradigm. Now, let me real quickly, just a working definition of a paradigm, because we're going to come back to this through this message. Uh, because Jesus, in this passage here, he challenges some core paradigms, one of which is who and what the Messiah is supposed to do. A paradigm, our working definition is simply this. A paradigm is a strongly held belief, concept, assumption, or idea 
that contributes to your worldview or creates the framework from which you interpret reality. And that's a lot of words, I know that, but it's, it's, it, it's something that we believe so strongly that it's hard to not see it. Right? It's hard to see the world any other way. We, we look through this lens. It's, it's a paradigm. So, for example, a, par- a paradigm that we've dealt with in the history of the world uh, is um, that the earth is flat. Actually, there are some people today that believe the earth is flat. I don't know how you come to that conclusion with all the evidence we have. But in, the, in, in antiquity, they believed that the earth was flat. And if you sailed too far in one direction or the other, you'd go off the, the, the edge of the earth. And that the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around earth. And, uh, you know, back in... Um, the ancient Greeks actually were the first to kind of suggest that maybe the earth was round. Uh, and it took a long time, almost a couple thousand years, for that to really catch on. Uh, and then Magellan is like, uh, in the 1500s, is like, well, or the 1400s. Anyway, Magellan is like, well, if the earth is round, then I can sail, I can sail west to get to the east. Like, you can go around, you're going to end up back, yeah, I can circumnavigate the world, which he, he eventually does. See, and, and so his paradigm shifted and then his behavior shifted, the way he interacted with the world shifted and the way we all interact with the world shifted, right? That was a paradigm. But for years, for a lot of years, the people defended the fact that the earth was flat, right? And then the lens shifted and we look at the world differently t- today and it changes everything. Right, so here's another example. When I was growing up, if you wanted to have a phone conversation, you had to go to the kitchen, and you had there was this thing on the wall, and you would pick up this this handle, and it had a cord coming out from it, and it went back to the phone, and then literally you had to have a a, a number memorized because nobody does that anymore, and then you had to. And I'm really really old, just so you know. You had to dial. I so see it was. And you're all thinking, wow, he's really, really old. It wasn't that long ago, guys. But that's how phones worked. That's how phones had worked for almost a hundred years. You know, you 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 picked up the, the thing, it was attached to the wall. If you had a you know, if I would have had a sister, we would have had a really long cord so she could go to the other end of the room or the other end of the house or into her bedroom and, and be able to talk on the phone in privacy. But since it was just me and my brother, we just had a short cord and we just talked in the kitchen. And that's how you communicated with people. If you were to tell me then that in, in just, uh, just a few short years that, that we were going to be able to walk around with phones in our pockets... Uh, and not just have one phone per family, but everybody gets a phone, including the dog. Well, not the dog, but our smallest children, they all get a phone, right? And that phone is, well, not only will you be able to make a phone call on it and actually talk to somebody, that, but that people are going to start to hate to talk on the phone, and they're going to want to use it as a texting machine, and they're, gonna, they're going to write to each other rather than actually have conversations. And, and if you were to tell me that there's going to be more computing power in that phone than there was in the space shuttle, I'd say you're nuts, You're out of your mind. That's ridiculous. The world will never be like that. But it was a paradigm shift, right? And we had to get on the other side of actually seeing those phones, experiencing those phones, experiencing to go, oh, okay. I I just couldn't have seen the world that way before that. Or 
You know, and in the, in the days to come, with the acceleration of technological advancement, we're going to see, like in five years, I don't know that we're going to recognize our world. In 10 years, it's going to be completely different because there are all these things, the internet of things and all of that, uh, that are just going to change the way we interact with our world, the way we interact with one another, and we can't even fathom it. And this is this shift in the way we see the world that we will start to get our heads around as it begins to happen. I remember in 19... 19, yeah, 1900s, that was a long time ago. Um, 1991, I went to the computer lab at my college and somebody was showing me, I was taking a, a computer programming class and they showed me that you can get something called an email account. And uh, you could get, but you had to log in and then you had to find somebody else somewhere at another university somewhere that had an email account. And if you could find somebody with an email account and you could type in all this code and eventually you could send them an email and it was cumbersome and it was awful. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, this is never going to catch on. And they're like, oh, the internet is going to be the biggest thing. So, no, I don't, this is too cumbersome. But then in 94, I remember I was at a friend's house and, and he had a, uh, a computer and he said, let's get on the internet. And I'm like, oh, the internet's never going to catch on. And he opened up after, you know, hitting the, the dial button and the thing going and all of that. And, and then it opened up Netscape. And it was this visual, and you just clicked on things. And I was like, well, that's going to change everything, you know, right? So it was a paradigm shift. The internet, this internet thing might catch on. And, and so we've lived through some of these, um, but it's the way we see the world. And so the Jewish people had a paradigm about who the Messiah was was and, and who he was going to be, what he was going to do. It's, it's the way things are. It's the way things are done. And when you have a paradigm, it is very difficult to see the world in any other way unless some pretty significant things happen. And this is why Peter, James, and John, as they're with Jesus on the mountain last week, and Jesus for the second time says, look, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders, they're going to torture me, kill me, I'm going to die, and then I will come back from the dead in three days. And they're like, what do you think he means by this come back from the dead in three days? He's, it's a paradigm that, that Jesus is running into. They just don't get it. They were set on something. Peter was so set on the Messiah being the glorious victor over the, the Romans that, uh, that he couldn't see it any other way. You know, and they do what we do, right? They look at Scripture, they're looking at the prophecies, and they're interpreting it through the lens of the day that they live in. And like, so this has to apply to the Romans, and it has to look like this. And they were confident that that's what it looks, that, that's what all those prophecies meant, and that's what it looked like, just like some people are today. And he couldn't see it any other way. Well, in verse 30, it says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. So this momentum is building up. They're heading towards, they're going to start heading towards Jerusalem. Um, Jesus is going to start to fulfill what he said he was going to do. And at this point, he pulls his disciples away from the crowds and he's like, we're going to bust up some paradigms because you guys need to get these things straight. 
And so he just, it's just him and his inner circle, and he is going to do some paradigm busting. And hopefully today we will as well. The first thing that he does, and it's the third time that he, and it's going to take some time, it's the third time that, that, that he hits this with his disciples, the first paradigm shift Jesus tackles in this passage is that the Messiah came to save the world, not just Israel. See, they were, they were thinking, their perception of the, the Messiah was he was going to come and restore the glory of Israel. He was going to come and, and, um, and establish Jerusalem uh, and, and reestablish the glory of Jerusalem and the, the, the prominence of, of Israel and God's chosen people. In verse 31, it says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Well, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. This is the third time. Why are they afraid to ask him? Well, they should have gotten it by now, but they still don't understand what he's talking about because they're looking through their paradigm and he is, about, he is walking them through a paradigm shift, which oftentimes is painful, by the way. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to question whether these guys have what it takes. I mean, really. <laughs> I mean, I know Jesus picked them, so they have what it takes. And we know through history that they, they rise to the occasion, they make the shift and all of that. But, you know, they're ordinary, unqualified, uneducated fishermen and tax collectors and, and all of that. And they're just not getting it. But again, when you understand the power of paradigm, you understand why. And again, Jesus is patient with them as he walks them through this shift in thinking, which brings us to the second paradigm shift, which is this, that, that salvation was spiritual, not military. Again, they were looking at a military savior, somebody who would defeat their military opponents, their nationalistic opponents, and, and deliver them militarily. And that was not what he came to do. He came to heal the rift between God and man. He came to be the sacrifice that would pay for sin once and for all. That's why he came. They didn't have their arms around that, and they had a hard time getting their arms around it, but it was a spiritual savior, not a military savior. This was a huge paradigm shift for them. And in verse 33, it says... And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had, been, had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So they're, tra they're traveling along, and they're making their way back to the home base in Capernaum, and the guys are kind of hanging back, and they're having this conversation about, well, who gets to be number one, and who gets to be number two, and who gets to be, be number... 11, right? And they're not arguing about number 12 because everybody knows that Jesus called Peter Satan. So he was going to be 12. Everybody, they're arguing between the rest of the positions. Who gets to be the greatest in this operation when we get to Jerusalem and Jesus is wrong about this whole dying thing and we get to take over and be, you know, and fulfill what we believe is going to happen. And again, they're operating on another paradigm. They're operating on the paradigm of their culture, which is greatness is greatness, Right? Greatness is greatness. Greatness, to, to be great is to be powerful, to have position, 
to have dominance over, to to, uh, exercise your authority over other people, to have them serve you. That's greatness. And who gets that position, whoever gets that higher position or that highest position, gets to be in charge, and they're going to be the greatest. Who gets to be the leader after Jesus? And Jesus is about to blow up that paradigm as well. In verse 35, it says, and he sat down, So obviously this was going to take a little while. He sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. They're arguing about, they're elbowing for, competing for the highest position in their their ranks. They want to be, every one of them wants to be great. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. And he he teaches this in a variety of places through the Gospels. It comes up over and over again because, again, this is a paradigm that that they have been steeped in since they were were little, and it's just what everybody knows to be true, that great people have position and power and authority, and people serve them. And Jesus blows it up. The third paradigm shift that Jesus drops on them is simply this. Greatness is found in humility, and being a servant. Now, I think, you know, if you study Jesus and you go through what we're, I mean, if you look back and you look forward through the the gospel of Mark and through all of the gospels, one of the things that becomes apparent is that Jesus pretty much teaches his followers to just do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. Right, I mean, you, 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 it's not always the case, but it's it's the case a lot. The world is going in this direction. Jesus says, "Go in this direction." They say, "Live this way." I say, "Live this way," and he says it over and over and over again. And and here he's saying, "Look, it's not about elbowing your way into the top position. It's not about getting more power, more prestige, more notoriety, more influence. It's not about any of those things. What life is about, and if you really want to be great, it's about serving other people. It's about humbling yourself and going to the end of the line and pushing the people in front of you up and promoting them. We like to call this, in the church, we like to call this servant leadership, right? It's kind of noble, this idea of servant leadership. We, um, which, what we mean by that is it's great to have power and, and position and all of that stuff, but you got to be nice, right? You know, an occasional kindness, be concerned about the pe- people who are following you, keep your ego in check so it doesn't get too far out of, you know, I mean, you can have a little ego, but don't have too much. And, you know, do what you can to create a great workplace, if it's a workplace or a great environment. And that's servant leadership. But really, when you think about it, that is servant as a verb, right? And Jesus wasn't talking about servant as a verb. He was talking about servant as a noun. We do servanty things, right? And, and, and so as long as we do servanty things, then we, you know, we're, we're a servant. But Jesus is like, no, 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 no humble yourself. That's something that we do in here. It's not just something that we do. I mean, we do it out here. We do things that, that humble ourselves, but it's something that is internal. Jesus is talking about internalizing this idea of being 
a servant. And, you know, in, in other places, he says the first will be last and the last will be first. In other words, insinuating that God is going to humble those who have exalted themselves and exalt those who have humbled themselves. He says, if you want to be great, make yourself a slave in another place. You know, back in, in uh, chapter 3 of Genesis, we see God had made the first human beings, and they were, they were servants of God. You know, they, they worked in the garden. They, they served God. God was God, and they were not, and they knew that, and they, they followed him, and they had an unbroken, beautiful relationship with God as, as servants and as children and, and all of that. And then Satan shows up, and he goes, you know what? You can be like God. You don't have to serve God. You can be your own gods, you know? You just eat from this, this tree that God told, told you not to, and, and you're going to see the world differently. Paradigm shift. Very bad paradigm shift. And they chose to serve themselves instead of cho choosing to serve God. And that, the Bible says, was sin, and it came into our world, and it came into our human race, and it has infected all of the human race ever since. And the propensity to serve, the temptation to serve ourselves instead of serving God and serving others is still at the core of the brokenness of our world to this very day. And Jesus is like, choose to serve others. Choose to be a servant. It will go better with you. Now, the, again, huge paradigm shift. Huge paradigm. No, 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 no. This is about getting to the top. This is about, you know, you step on whoever you need to step, step on to get to. No, no, no. Serve. And not just do servanty things, but internalize being a servant. The Apostle Paul, I think, captures beautifully what Jesus taught throughout the Gospels, what Jesus taught throughout his ministry in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 9, he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others, promote others, encourage others. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Jesus and the Father are co-equals, and the Father's like, okay, Jesus, I've got a plan, and it's going to involve your, uh, your crucifixion. I need you to, to step down out of heaven, go to earth, become a human being, step out of your glory, and humble yourself and become like a, one of our creations. I need you to live with them for a while. And then in the end, I need, to let, I need for you to let them torture you and beat you and dishonor you and kill you. 
And Jesus chose that. In another place it says, for the glory set before him, he endured the cross. He chose to serve not just his father, but to serve us by doing all of those things. And he is the example, as the apostle Paul says, for all of us. We choose to serve. James, Jesus' half-brother, said it this way, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When we choose, Jesus, the the paradigm shift is, is really simply this. Our world tells us, exalt yourself. Climb the ladder, get to the top, make sure everybody can see how great you are. And Jesus says, humble yourself and let the Lord exalt you. And that's the way it really works. It's a radical shift. It's hard to get through our thick heads. Jesus is saying, choose downward mobility. Choose downward mobility. Well, in verse 36, the passage goes on. It says, and he took a child and put him, put him in the midst of them. He didn't want there to be any mistaking what he was saying. He takes a kid and he puts him in the middle of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, guys, this is really easy to read through a 21st century lens. Guys, in the 21st century, we worship kids. It's all about the kids. You want to raise a bunch of money? Do it for the kids. People would just, you know, whatever. If, if it's for the kids, it is because kids are the great. I mean, it's all about the kids, right? The kids are the center of our, our 21st century world. It wasn't always that way. Actually, you know, you look back in just, just the last 100 years or so, 100 or 150 years, used to have for schools, it used to be a one-room schoolhouse with a potbelly stove and an outhouse. And all the kids from that little neighborhood would come and go to the, and then one teacher, and they would, they would teach. And actually, if you go back and you look at the materials that they taught, their sixth graders were smarter than our 12th graders. I mean, it was unbelievable the depth of knowledge that they had, right? But they didn't go out of their way to make this amazing environment for kids, they had a one-room schoolhouse with a potbelly stove and, a, and, a, uh, and an outhouse. Today, we build temples to education with all the latest technology and millions and millions and millions of dollars so that the kids can have the very best. It's a little bit different than just, just 100 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. I remember when I went to college, which was probably about a thousand years ago, um, but it was actually, it was 1998. And I remember going and getting to my dorm room and it was a cinder block, small cinder block square room. Our bunk beds barely fit. There were 60 guys on our floor. We shared one telephone. It was a pay phone. This was back when phones were still attached to the wall. And uh, one pay phone, and so if the phone rang and somebody needed to talk to somebody, you had to go find one of the 60 guys somewhere on the, on the floor. We shared, 60 guys shared two showers, right? And then at the cafeteria, I remember this because this changed really fast. Uh, I remember that first year, 
whatever they were serving, you would get until it was gone. So if it was shepherd pie, you might be eating shepherd pie for three or four nights. And then once it was gone, you would get the next thing. And I remember I was doing college ministry in the late 90s, early 2000s, and going to West Liberty's cafeteria, and they've got a Mongolian grill and a, and a salad bar and this and that. And, and I remember the students c- complaining about how awful the food was. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Would you like some shepherd pie? I mean, really? And, and it, it has just progressed and progressed to the point that everybody gets their own room. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's because it's all about the kids. All right. I'm not beating up. If you're, if you're in college today or you're a kid today, I'm not beating you up for, for things being so awesome for you. I'm just saying things have changed. And you got to understand that things have changed. In the, tw- in the first century, kids were less than slaves. Wealthy people would hire somebody called a pedagogue or a teacher to raise their children until they were 11, 12, 13 years old, and then they would be presented to their father as, as human beings. That was, the 20, that was the first century world because they didn't really count until then. Kids were not valued. They were the least of the least. They didn't even contribute anything. They just ate, ate stuff. Some things have not changed. Anyway, and Jesus is saying, look, you want to please God? You want to please God? Serve the least of the least. See. Make space in your world to even see the least of the least. Ones that can do nothing back for you, welcome them. Make time for them. Make space in your day for them. See them serve them. And as you do, this idea of being a servant will not just be something that you do, it will be something that you become. It will move from being a verb, doing servy things, to a noun, becoming a servant. Jesus is challenging this paradigm of how one becomes great, and he's saying, get your eyes off your own ambition and your own greatness, and see the people around you. And it will begin, this idea of becoming a servant will begin to become part of who you are, not just something you choose to do because I said so. You know, in Philippians 2, 3, where Paul said, we already read this, I want to read it again, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourself. And Jesus is saying, even the least. So let me ask you, how's that going for you? How's your serve? How's that going in your marriage? I know, I know, I know. She doesn't deserve it. You don't have to live with her. Or you don't have to live with him. And, 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 and he doesn't serve me, so why should I have... How's it going? How's your serve? How, how about with the annoying coworkers or the people who, who are under you at work or the students who are under you at, at college if you're a senior or the, the freshman? Are you, do you see them? Do you make space to talk to them, encourage them, serve them? Or are you the big, big guy on campus? How's that going? You know, I tell married couples all the time who are struggling Guys, if you want to have a great marriage, the formula is super simple, and it's this. Serve one another. 
choose to love one another. And if you will outlove and outserve one another, you will, it, it is the recipe for a beautiful life together. But as long as it's about you and you're not a servant, it doesn't work. It never works. Now, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were fully bought into the paradigm of the time. They were all about their position and their authority, the honor they got in the public places. But they, if, you know, if they would have caught wind of this and, and, and actually bought into it, they, they would have probably just focused on externally doing survey kind of things because that's what they did. They focused on the outside. And as long as the outside behavior was good, it didn't matter what the inside was like. But for Jesus, it was about becoming the right kind of person on the inside. He was always coming back to the heart. Had to be lived out on the outside. But it comes back to what is God doing in here? And sometimes becoming the right kind of person on the inside starts with the decision to do the right thing on the outside. There's nothing wrong with that. We call it faking it till you make it. But you have to pay attention to your heart in the process because ultimately that's what God is wanting to change. And he will. So start serving, but pay attention to your heart. Well, in verse 38... The passage goes on. It says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw something, someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Here's the paradigm shift. The door to the kingdom is open to all who will enter. These guys were looking through the, the, the lens of, the paradigm of, we are, uh, we are the chosen people. The, the, the Jewish people saw the world through the lens of we are, we are God's chosen people and they are the Gentile dogs. At this point in history, that was the perception. That was, that was the paradigm. And, and it was about, in a lot of ways, their exclusivity and their, and their position. And the disciples are looking at this, whoever this startup exorcist is in Jesus' name and going, oh, no, 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 no. We don't need anybody else doing that. That's our territory. We got it. It's ours. We don't need competition for first, second, third, fourth. Back off, buddy. Jesus, will you tell him to back off? And Jesus is like, no, no, no. no. The door, guys, you got to... The kingdom is open to all who will enter. And this isn't about you having first place or you having exclusive rights to, to my name. This is about the kingdom. This is, and it is open to anyone who will call on my name and walk through the door. The disciples were protecting their turf. So that was a paradigm that had to shift. The fifth paradigm shift, I think, is simply this. Your greatness 
has more to do with who you elevate than what you accomplish. Your greatness has more to do with who you elevate than what you accomplish. See, when Jesus says, if you want to be great, make yourself last. If you want to be first, go to the end of the line. What happens when you go to the end of the line? You're pushing the people in front of you to the top of the line. Elevate other people. Guys, the most loved, the most cherished, the most admired people in our world are people who are secure enough to not promote themselves, but promote the people around them, to see the people around them and give them opportunities and cheer them on and brag on them to other people and give them opportunities to become all that they could be. If you've ever read the book uh, by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, it's all about that. So There's so many biblical principles in that. But the impact that you will have on this world is multiplied when it is lived out through other people, and it's not just how great you are. And they will love you for it. And your greatness will be multiplied. Because every one of us, no matter how talented you are, has a little bit to offer. But if we can leverage the lives of the people around us and make them great, push them to the front of the line and swallow our pride and our ego enough to make it not about us, but about them. The kingdom wins. They win. The world works better. And you are great. Your greatness has more to do with who you elevate than what you accomplish. This is what Jesus is telling the disciples. Guys, don't. Don't, don't elbow your way to the front of the line, but push other people to the front of the line. For people like this, self-promotion isn't even on their radar. And in God's economy, self-promotion is a character flaw. Now, this is very countercultural today. In a day where we take pictures of our food and say, look at me, look at me, look at what I just ate, look at my vacation, look at my kids, look how awesome my kids are. Look what I just did. Look, 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 look. I mean, self-promotion is the culture of the world we live in today. And so I think Jesus would get in our faces just like he got in the disciples' faces and say, it's time for a paradigm shift. It's time for a paradigm shift. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you got to die to yourself. And I think dying to ourselves is dying to the way we've always seen things. It's leaning into what Jesus said is true because that's what is really true. That's what will really work. And as you do, you will begin to see reality and you will begin to see that he is right. And your life will begin to work because he's right. So let me ask you this question. Have you been living based on your own paradigm or the paradigms of this world? Or have you been living based on what Jesus has taught? We've got five paradigms today that Jesus blew up, and I'm sure, I don't know which one lands hardest with you, but I want to encourage you this week to wrestle with that one 
And I want to encourage you this week also to wrestle with what else is Jesus challenging that I have held on to, that I've just believed it's this way and it's true. And he's challenging you, and maybe he's been challenging you for weeks or months or years, and you got to die to that thing. Wrestle with it. Wrestle with him. Lord Jesus, would you, would you challenge our hearts? Would you challenge our paradigms? Would you help us to see the world through your lenses, not the lenses that have been handed to us by our world and our culture? Help us to understand your paradigms. Help us to live your ways. And God, would you leverage our lives and would you help us to leverage the lives of the people around us to make them great for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.